Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A blazing fire under the body of the nitro-powered Toyota Camry of Alexis DeJoria, and this is as bad a fire as you're ever going to see. On this episode, it's PR executive Elon Werner and Andrew Hines of Vance and Hines. Eric Anders is your 2020 Pro Stock World Champion in stunning fashion. We're going totally behind the curtain on this show. Scotty's out on Andrew at 1,000 feet. It's Scotty Polachek for the first time in his career. This is the NHRA Insider. Tony Schumacher. Wow, what an appropriate way to end this one. 28 thousandths at the strike. An instant classic final round. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Taking a little bit of a different path uh, over the course of this show. Elon Werner will be our first guest. He is an executive with Tony Fay Public Relations, has been involved in the sport of drag racing for many years. And I'm interested to pick his brand a little bit and talk about the PR elements of drag racing on the professional level, what his functions are, what kind of uh, his main modus operandi is on each and every race weekend. He works with racetracks. He works with multiple race teams. And he has, again, been involved in drag racing for many years. We'll get his story in just a few minutes. Andrew Hines will be our second guest. Of course, very interested to talk about the success of the debut of the four-valve Suzuki program that Vance and Hines rolled out at the Gator Nationals. Of course, we saw Angel enter the 200-mile-an-hour club, became the seventh member of that club, and we saw Joey Gladstone and Corey Reed ride their machines well. So it's going to be fun to talk to him about the developmental phase and kind of what they learned coming out of the Gator Nationals. So big news coming out of Vegas, of course, this week, and the fact that, uh, yes, with limited capacity, but their race is already sold out. So if you were planning on going uh, to the Denzel Sparkplugs Four Wide Nationals at the Strip at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, if you don't have tickets yet, uh, you're either going to beg them off somebody or you will be watching our FS1 coverage on Friday night for qualifying and then our FS1 coverage of qualifying and eliminations for Saturday and Sunday. It is going to be a great race weekend. The fields are filling up, and of course the stands will be as full as we are allowed to have them. And when we go from Las Vegas, it'll be a very short hop to get to Atlanta, then Charlotte and Houston, and we really kind of pick up steam from there. It has been an interesting stretch of days, too long for everybody's taste, but it is what it is here in 2021. We got the Gator Nationals done. It really did feel good leaving that racetrack. Of course, we had a lot of positive results on our television broadcast. You saw what the grandstands look like. And then, uh, you know, we kind of go into this holding pattern, which was necessary, which is not something I'm questioning or saying is a bad thing. I'm just saying as a fan, as a participant, as somebody involved in the world of NHRA Championship Camping World Drag Racing, I want to be at the drag strip, baby. Had an opportunity to go up to Vegas a couple of weeks ago for the Spring Fling Million. Big dollar bracket action. I talked to you about that a little bit on last week's show. But there has been some fun stuff going on in the world of NHRA drag racing. And I think when we talk about races in Atlanta, Charlotte, and Houston, we're going to talk about some increased crowd capacities there. Just looking at the local news and kind of what's been going on in those particular states. Obviously, this will be the final running of the NHRA Southern Nationals at Atlanta Dragway. It is important to say that because who knows? There could be another track in the future that holds the Southern Nationals, but this will be the last, shall we say, first generation or or Southern Nationals proper to be held at Atlanta Dragway in Commerce, Georgia. It will be a bittersweet weekend, but it will certainly be one that uh, everybody's going to show up for to try to win. It's a legacy race, been around since 1981, putting a cap on 40 great years of action at Atlanta Dragway. Other news around the world of drag racing, of course, we know about the great story out of Funny Car Chaos out of Texas, uh, multiple NHRA racers down there, whether we're talking about Richard Hartman or Del Worsham or uh, 
uh, loads of people. I'm stumbling on my own words now, but we have we had a load of alcohol funny car racers down there, of course, some nitro racers, nostalgia nitro racers, and it was a show that people are still talking about. About 70 funny cars showed up to the Texas Motorplex, and this is something we're going to talk to Elon about because Elon works with the Texas Motorplex on their PR front. I want to talk to him about the differences between a Funny Car Chaos-style event versus an NHRA national event in terms of promotion, in terms of garnering audience, and in terms of helping the event be successful. And really, outside those events I mentioned, it's been a fairly quiet couple of weeks in the world of NHRA camping, world drag racing. There has been some divisional action around the country, racers going out there and not only winning themselves some money, but also winning themselves some of those Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series wallies. So as we transition from our monologue into our interviews here, I'd like to welcome first Elon Werner. He is the first guest on this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. To give him his correct title, he is the VP of Sports Publicity at Tony Fay Public Relations in Texas. Elon Werner, how you doing, man? Brian, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for uh, for having me on. This is a uh, this unusual experience for me to be the one being interviewed <laughs> since 90% of my uh, life is revolved around putting p- other people in front of the microphone or the camera. So I appreciate you uh, giving me an opportunity here. Yeah, and that's really what I wanted to talk about in a general sense here because I really don't think a lot of fans at home understand kind of the, the machinations or inner workings of what somebody like you does to try to support the teams, try to support the different uh, organizations that you work for, including racetracks. So the natural first place to start here is give us the rundown of your career in NHRA thus far, because it is pretty colorful and interesting. Sure. I, um, I actually was introduced to drag racing in 1993. I was living in Dallas, working for the Dallas Mavericks and a mutual friend said there was a racetrack in Ennis that was looking for a PR person. And I had no knowledge of NHRA drag racing other than, the great Keith Jackson, Wild World of Sports, watching Don Garlitz, Shirley Muldowney, Connie Coletta, you know, at the U.S. Nationals on ABC on sure. you know, Saturday and Sunday morning. That was it. And that was 25 years before that. So um, I actually interviewed at the Motorplex with Billy Meyer, had no idea he was a former driver, <laughs> thought, every race tra- I thought every drag strip looked like the Motorplex, and Billy finally said, hey, I've been hiring drag racing guys trying to teach them PR. I'm going to hire a PR guy with some experience and teach them drag racing. And that's exactly what he did. I was at the Motorplex from 93 until 2000. Um, the last couple of years I was there, I was actually general manager of the racetrack. Um, I had an opportunity to leave and go work with Tony Fay um, on another project where I actually did the PR for the International Hot Boat Association. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, which is actually where I met guys like, you know, Kevin Kinsley, um, you know, Scott Palmer was dabbling in that a little bit and kind of, you know, the whole drag racing deal. But um, that was my first experience with there is something worse than rain at a racetrack. <laughs> it is wind at a drag boat event. The invisible the, enemy. <laughs> the invisible enemy. It gets to ch- the first time it happened, we were in uh, Muskogee, uh, Oklahoma. And I'm looking around like, why are we not running boats? And they're like, oh, it's too windy. And I'm like, it's 87 degrees, blue skies. There's thousands of people everywhere, and we're not. And they're like, yeah, it's a uh, 15 mile per hour winds. We got to wait till it gets down to 10 miles per hour. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, it's too choppy out there. Um, <laughs> but I did that for a couple of years. Had an opportunity. Uh, Dave Dinsmore, who is my mentor, um, I was so fortunate to have people that taught me the PR business, like uh, Dave Dinsmore. Uh, Susie Arnold, Joe Shirk, Dave Ferroni, um, 
old school people that when I was coming up, they were kind of the old guys in the room. And earlier this year at the Gator Nationals, I walked into the press room and realized, wait a second. Now I'm the now I'm the old guy. Now, now I'm the old guy. <laughs> um, I got the opportunity to work for John Force Racing for about ten seasons, uh, which is ten human seasons. It's actually forty-seven Force seasons. <laughs> um, and then um, through that relationship, uh, just had an opportunity to kind of come work with Coletta and some other teams. And now um, I work primarily with Coletta Racing, um, Justin Ashley and Alexis DeJoria, and I, and I help a few other smaller teams um, just kind of really um, get the word out about their teams. So I've seen it the, the sport from all sides, from the team side, from the facility side. I've worked with the sanctioning body, but never for the sanctioning body. So, But I understand um, it's a three-headed monster that all has to work together. Um, and PR continues to play, I think, a really important role in that. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And, and you know, a lot of times when we see, you know, whether it's um, one of our drivers interacting with a pro athlete or one of our drivers doing some some kind of off-the-wall deal, it's not just because some magical person in a, in a room somewhere picked up the phone and called them. It's because somebody like you has conceived something, pitched it, and actually made this happen. So I guess I'd like to talk a little bit about that, too, in terms of, you know, you talk, you talk about working with Coletta with Coletta Motorsports or Coletta Racing. Let's talk a little bit about on a, you know, on a generalized basis. What do you consider sure. your goals? Like when you when they when they talk to you and you talk to them, what do you set goals for in terms of being a public relations officer effectively yeah. for them? I, I think it, there's um, there's three groups of people you're now really working with. Um, number one is media coverage. You want to make sure. Um, your team, obviously the results, pre-race storylines, whether or not you've got a new sponsor to announce or an initiative, that that gets out to the media, which is now both a shrinking and expanding yeah. pool of people. The kind of national old school media is shrinking. News, newsrooms are getting smaller. TV studios are cutting staff. But then there's this expanding universe of um, podcasts, you know, video shows, um, online newspapers, blogs, things like that that you're constantly mining. So when I first started, I could send out maybe 10 or 15 press releases or make you know 15 phone calls and reach 90% of a market as far as who was covering or providing media coverage. Now it is my media list is over 300 contacts across the country, and it's everybody from Competition Plus to NHRA.com to the guys that run Power Hour to yeah. um, Jerry Bonkowski, who just started a, you know, a podcast called The Racing Beat, to Jeff Gluck, to AP Wright. It's just this whole universe of people that you're constantly um, staying in touch with. So promoting your team's media announcements is one core part of it. The other is communicating with your sponsors, um, making sure they know releases, they have initiatives the teams are doing and you're writing press releases or providing content for their um, communications, e-newsletters, things like that. And then the third is honestly um, fans and social media. I'll put those two together. Okay. Um, working with Luke Fath, who does our social media um, content, you're kind of making sure um, we have ideas, you know, April Fool's jokes like we just did with Allison McCormick, which was sure. great, um, and things like that. So between races – I am working on releases for upcoming events. Like I'm working on releases right now for the four wise in Vegas and also for a couple things we have brewing in Charlotte. Okay. 
Um, and Charlotte is a great market for all the teams I've worked with because there's an opportunity to tie in NASCAR. Oh, absolutely. And that's yeah. an opportunity to bring some NASCAR drivers to the track. You know, you're trying to get maybe a little plug on Race Hub. It helps with our Fox relationship that, you know, now we have this synergy between our sport and, and NASCAR, and it's all on the same network, which helps. Um, so you're thinking of ideas to promote your drivers or your sponsors or your team inside our bubble, but then also look for opportunities to take them outside of the bubble. And probably the best one we have coming up in Charlotte is through our relationship with Rowdy Energy and Kyle Bush, we think there's going to be an opportunity to get Kyle together with our team oh, nice. somehow in Charlotte doing something around that. No, that's um, great. So those are things. But I, I will tell you, um, the best place for me to come up with ideas is mowing my yard. <laughs> and we've actually, I think we've actually discussed this before, but yes. And the best idea I ever came up with was, this was after Forces crash in 2007, so this would have been the summer of 2008. Um, I'm mowing my yard, and you just kind of get in that zone. And I'm thinking, yeah, Forces is going to be coming back to the motorplex here in a couple months. And I was like, how cool would it be if the first time he set foot on the track was coming out of the same helicopter that took him off the track after his crash? Okay. And that's Drama. exactly what I did. I reached out to Air Flight. And said, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to have you guys, we're going to do a press event at the track. I want to have you guys fly force back and land in the exact spot you took off from and have him step off the helicopter, and then we're going to drive him up the track. Ford was our sponsor at the time, and so we just put him in a flex and drove him back up the track to the starting line and did a press event on the starting line. Yeah, that's amazing. That's and that's exactly, that's exactly what we did. And the, the crazy thing is, as the, the air flight um, paramedics are walking up, I recognized one of them, and we went to college together. <laughs> that's a small <laughs> world, I had man. no idea. I was like, Cliff? And he was like, yeah. And I go, I thought you were a fireman. And he's like, no, I switched over to helicopter paramedic. And I was like, so you were part of the crew that flew force out of here? And he's like, oh, yeah. He goes, man, that guy was screwed up, and he would not shut up. The whole flight. <laughs> The whole play from Ennis to Dallas, the guy who said he was just talking nonstop. And they thought he was in shock, and I was like, nope, that's just force. It's, yeah, that is that is the guy. Especially in that, in that scenario, I'm sure he just needed to be creating noise. Yes. And, uh, but, that, but coming up with creative ideas like that, um, you know, Woody Woodruff with Jags is a master, you know, tying in the elephant oh, yeah. with Mopar. You're just trying to find creative ways to get people's attention um, – to just cover the sport and talk because our personalities are so good. So I spend um, a good portion of my time between races just reaching out to various media people that I've seen. They wrote an article about a driver that, you know, was into surfing or, you know, extreme sports or skydiving. And I, and I immediately think, oh, you know what? I need to try to connect them with Alexis. Makes sense. Or, you know, there's, you know, a driver that, you know, or an athlete that, plays major league baseball, but also spends a lot of time with little league baseball players or youth baseball players. And I immediately go, Oh, you know what? I need to see if I can connect that guy with Sean Langdon because, you know, he obviously grew up as a junior dragster driver. He's involved with his nephew Caden's career. That might be a cool angle for him as well. Um, so, so it's, it's it's literally kind of a never ending process in some sense of the, in some sense of the word, because of the fact that you're always trying to find 
you know, really anything that would make logical sense to, to kind of put together. And that, and as you know, working with an organization like Coletta that has a very strong tie with Toyota, um, you right. know, like you mentioned, there's that kind of corporate element of it too. And, you know, what's the difference when we talk about an organization, kind of a monolithic organization like Coletta, then we talk about Justin Ashley's name you brought up. Uh, different needs, I would guess. I mean, obviously right. he has sponsors and he has people that are supporting him and, and people that want kind of the same, uh, you know, the same style sure. of, of uh, attention, if you will, but a much smaller operation and a much different approach, I'd have to guess. Yeah, it, it is. And it's there. there's a lot of similarities. And I really, um, I treat, and I think good PR people treat all their clients the same, just like I treat every media outlet the same, whether you're writing for the Texarkana Gazette or the New York Times. Um, you, Everyone needs to have the same access and you get the same attention, the, the same courtesies, whether, you know, and that's really served, and I learned that from Dave Dinsmore. That served me very well because people get promoted, they move on, they move to other places, and, you know, hey, they're like, hey, you know, when I was writing for the Roanoke Weekly, you gave me a really good opportunity, and now they're writing for the Washington Post. Yeah, and they're you know like, hey, we want to help you out. Same, the the driver clients and the size of the team, it's little different roles in that. Um, you know, Justin does his own social media, so you might be more involved in giving him some guidance on um, social media posts and things like that. And the same thing with um, even Alexis DeJoria. Um There's more kind of consulting on a few things or, Hey, how should we do this? Um, the mechanisms of dealing with like the guy like Justin, who does all his own sponsor fulfillment and sponsor recruiting. Um, it's a lot broader on some of sometimes some of the sponsor fulfillment stuff, as far as content press releases, you might be on a few more calls where Coletta has guys like Bob Lawson and Scott Duncan and Chad head. And there's more people. So, um, yeah, there's the another cool layer in is, there. There's another kind of layer. There's, there's, like, yeah, there's an extra yeah. layer in there. Um, but I also help out teams like um, have conversations. You know, I've worked with uh, Terry McMillan or um, Tim Wilkerson or TJ Zizzo, you know, independent teams that maybe only go to a handful of races. And to me, I kind of take it as a stewardship role with the NHRA to make sure those guys are prepared or know what's coming up or know what needs to be done or can provide a race report so the whole sport is has a consistent look like oh these are our 25 competitors we get race reports from them we get things in a timely fashion yeah, it's not you know, a situation how- of the haves and have nots i mean in a lot of exactly. ways in a lot of ways all racing is but in terms of the outward facing look of the sport if you're if you're hearing constantly from the same five people and not 25 people you kind of get a maybe a jaundiced eye as to who's uh, who's important and who isn't correct exactly and, th- and that's the big thing is kind of creating that consistent look and talking to teams about it is important to have a PR person. Um, you know, yes, we're living in a world where, you know, social media, a lot of people get their information from it, but being able to send out a press release, I still see a huge, a huge value in to getting it to new sites, to NHRA.com, to, you know, TV stations, because it, that's still the way people push out information through, releases and advisories and things like that um and it just makes the whole sport look better when we're being compared with nfl or major league baseball or nhl or even nascar that um the information is flowing out from the teams and from the sanctioning body 
in a consistent fashion and people know, oh yeah, you know what? There was a race this weekend. Here's the results. Here's quotes. Here's some stats. Um, you know, to really push the information out about your team so people have something to talk about. You know, one of the things um, that you mentioned earlier that I, I want to make sure people understand too is like we, you and I work together on a lot of stuff over the course of things on the TV show. I think most, you know, prominently last year was when we had JR and or rather when we had Sean and Justin Ashley in the booth together right. to, to kind of relive the, the crazy pedal fest they had at the the last race that we ran at, um, at Indy or whatever, the third race, whatever yeah. race we yeah, ran at Indy. Yeah. And that was, that was again, just kind of a lot of people have been talking about it and I thought, you know what, this would make, um, every PR person is a frustrated TV and movie producer <laughs> that, you know, so I, you know, as you know, you get texts from me, you get emails from me. And, um, you know, my deal always is I, I have this idea and I try to make it as turnkey as possible, trying to understand kind of what, what the show needs or what the talent needs and makes, makes it fit in with the show, but always realizing that, there's other people that are throwing ideas out there. And if my idea doesn't get picked, you can never take it personally. Yeah. And you just go out there and say, Hey, and this would be, and it really, and it worked out great because those are two guys with good personalities. They played off of each other and it made, I think a compelling segment to talk about, you know, that pedal fest in the semifinals where they're going back and forth and you know, what was going on in the car for them. And you just want to tell those stories. Cause I think it makes, um, Oh, the race yeah. that much more entertaining and understandable, and and it lends gravitas to the sport as well. Where the yes, these guys are actually driving these cars, not just you know hanging on. Exactly. And, and I, I want to ask you, like, just flat out, real honest question: what What do you see as the biggest challenge? Like, what is the biggest hurdle when you're trying to get something? Not necessarily on the TV show, but just generally speaking, what What do you find is the the biggest hurdle that you have to clear? Oh, right now it is the. Um, due to COVID, the fragmentation of media. Yeah. There's so many people that aren't going into their office. They aren't going into TV stations. Um, on the flip side, you can't have been able to set up some Zoom interviews, but just people just being so spread out. Yeah. Um, and you can't get that one-on-one um, personality maybe or people aren't allowed to go to a track um, and things like that. So that's, that's the current issue. The other issue is just people's, um, media people's, um, for lack of a better word, fear of learning something new. <laughs> racing, drag racing is complicated. Um, a lot of rules, a lot of classes, a lot of little, it, and they, no one wants to look foolish. Um, so they haven't grown up around it. They don't feel super confident around it. Um, so you have to do a lot of selling on the back end to make it as, make a media person or producer as comfortable as possible to take the chance to come out to a race and talk to a driver. And like, just like buying a ticket to a drag race, getting a media person to a drag race, 90% of the time, they're going to have a positive experience and they're going to be willing to at least listen to you again because the story was really good or they had great access or it was really exciting or the personalities really came through. And that's the biggest um, selling point for that. So I, um, I actually just had a conversation with, um, uh, Lee Childs, who runs the, the Power Hour show, about what, how can I help grow some of these podcasts? Yeah. Like, you know, you're, you don't need a lot of help because, you, you know, but obviously, you know, there's other podcasts out there that, um, yeah, that are high quality, listenable, plus, and great, and they're, 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 they're trying to claw for audience. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and, and basically being honest with them and saying, hey, I will get you a driver 
on your podcast, honestly, how, you know, at, at just about any level, I watch it. And if it's not a thousand percent terrible, I'll get a driver on there and then I'll follow up and say here, thanks for having my driver on. Here are three things I think you could do to make your podcast a little bit better. Yeah. Um, you know, it's value because there really is no, you know, there really, if you're doing something like that, which I'm ultimately familiar with, there is no real standard of criticism. You know what I mean? Like you're making something and you're like, okay, I think this is pretty good. And it probably is pretty good. But when somebody actually comes back and says, enjoyed it, let's try bing, bing, bing next time. Like you said, that just helps move the needle ahead. And it, and it makes it, it, it obviously, it doesn't matter if it's the power hour. It doesn't matter if it's WFO radio, whoever it is in this space. If we advance if everybody keeps taking steps forward, we all are beneficiaries of it. Yeah, and you, you just you just brought up a great point with with Joe Costello of WFO Radio. Ten years ago, when he started, WFO Radio was you know a, a small slice of the internet world. Now there's all these shows, and WFO Radio has morphed into a completely different animal than it was ten years ago, and a much better animal. Yeah, he's put a ton of work into it, and it shows. And, but that, and that's the thing. He put the time into it. He put personal investment into it. He The consistency of, you know, always really striving to get the race winners every week, um, you know, and then understanding, you know, Facebook and video. And, you know, when he can has the capability to have multiple guests on um, and have it be completely fluid, I mean, that's really, you know, pretty cool to do that. And, you know, and guys like yourself that have built, you know, through this latter process, you know, from bang shift to Fox TV announcer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, be serious. I mean, yeah. you're, you're the perfect example of a guy that was out there with a passion and an idea that very easily, I'm sure many people blew you off oh, yeah. and told you, yeah, this is just, this is just nuts. I don't have time for this. No, I'm not going to do this. No, you can't do this. Well, now there have to be people that are like, Oh man, I really feel bad about blowing off loans seven years ago. Yeah, but like you, you don't ever take it personally. You just go, okay. Yeah, it, it's not, not like you're, it's not like you're doing things to get back at somebody. But you, there no. is listen, and it's undeniable. It's humanity. There is a level of satisfaction when you do circle back around to that person, and they're like, "Hell yeah, whatever you need, we'll do it right now." <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, and you and, and you both and you both just you know it never comes up with you both just you both know that yeah you both remember the time that you know and I remember and I, and it's happened to everybody both sides of the coin. There's times when I've blown people off, and then there's times when I've been blown off. And then you just circle back, and you just try to be professional about it, and you just move on. Like, that's in the past. Let me buy you a beer. Let's talk about this next project. So one last question before I let you go. On a sure. on a race-winning weekend, Sean Langdon goes out there and wins the uh, – you know, Sean Langdon goes out there and wins top fuel at the – at uh, whatever event we're talking about here. And what is the difference between a race-win weekend versus a first-round loss weekend in your world? Oh, um, first round losses are the worst. Um, cause you, you know, every, every Sunday morning I kind of get all my race reports started with like stat packages and kind of get them all started as like, you know, five or six word documents just tabbed out and I kind of write an open of just, and then kind of keep notes on how my day, how the day, how the day progresses for a driver. So that first round loss is always the worst because then you have to kind of go back to your qualifying story and pull information from your qualifying story to add to your race report story so it's not two paragraphs. Yeah, that makes sense. A race win story, you're just 
compiling all this information and adding it to the Word document and, you know, kind of what happened in the first round, second round, grabbing quotes off the PA, maybe grabbing a quote or something, you know, in the pits. And then at the end of the day, you have, um, you know, coordinate winner's circle, which now is a little trickier because it's happening in the pits. Um, and then you're kind of getting quotes from drivers. You're having to supply some people with some quotes, whether it's Toyota or DHL or Mac tools. And then you finally circle back to the pressure room about an hour, an hour and 20 minutes after the race is over. And then you start riding. It is so, cool. It is a neat thing. And um, obviously the most of the people watching this or listening to this podcast will never see it. But when you dip into the press room hour, hour and a half after the race and, and especially a track that draws a lot of media, whether it's Charlotte or somewhere else, and it's just silence and all you hear are keys, like there's whatever, yes. 15 people, you get journalists, you got, uh, you know, uh, public relations folks in there. And it's it's kind of cool when people walk in and they're they're putting their pieces together for the weekend. And how much yeah. difference is the time, the time frame of your work production from 1993 and it really, I guess, from when you first started going out with sure. the race teams to right now, obviously that was a slower world. It was not necessarily the immediate Correct. world. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I told you one last question, but this is not a last question. Sure. What is the right. difference in turnaround from the 90s until now? Oh, it is, you know, in the 90s, we could spend, you know, really an hour or an hour and a half really kind of crafting a nice little story to get out to people. Now it's when I sit down, if I'm not really proofing what I'm writing in 45 minutes, I've hit a roadblock of something. I mean, you, it's, it's cut it in half. And, um, the perfect example is when we win a championship, yeah. um, you actually write, you know, whenever you clinch the championship on Sunday or even, you know, let's say you clinch it after first round, we will immediately send out a story now that so-and-so won the championship like right after first round. And then as the race goes on, then you'll send another story later, but the immediacy of, you know, getting that kind of information out now has changed dramatically from the nineties where you just send it out at the end of the day, because there wasn't really a mechanism to get it out right away. Yeah. They would but take now, it and sift through it in the mechanism. newsroom the next day and kind of pick and choose what they wanted as opposed to now where it's somebody exactly. at a desk, it's coming in and it's going somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's, that's the biggest change, but it's, it's, uh, I mean, I wouldn't change it um, for for anything. You know, I've gotten to meet amazing people. You get to do really cool events, particularly with sponsor events, you know, with um, Ford and Chevy and Toyota there, you know, involved in NASCAR or IndyCar, um, you know, and so getting to cross over into those events is a great opportunity to, again, meet new media people to hopefully grow the sport, circling back with some other stuff. No, it's great, man. Elon, uh, certainly appreciate you coming on. I think sure. this has been enlightening for uh, for a bunch of people to listen to because it's not really a subject we address a lot. It's just something that seems to happen. The press releases yeah, come out that, like there's that, a magical machine at the racetrack, and that machine is you for a bunch of people. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Brian, I really, I really appreciate you uh, giving me the chance to, to chat this up, so uh, I really uh, just can't thank you enough. All right, man, we'll appreciate it, and yes. I'm off to speak to Andrew Hines. Thank you very much, Elon Werner. Sure, thank you. Elon is truly a great guy and someone that has a load of experience, perhaps the most experience out of anybody that is in his role today in the sport of NHRA Camping World Drag Racing. Speaking of experience, speaking of success, let's talk about Andrew Hines and the Vance and Hines program that rolled out three fresh brand new motorcycles at the Gator Nationals and wowed them all with an incredible opening weekend performance. And one of the guys who put his blood, sweat, and tears into that program, Mr. Andrew Hines. Andrew, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Brian. How about you? Good. So the first question is, was like, I don't know, Saturday night at Gainesville, the first time you slept in months or what? 
actually, it probably was, let's see, probably Wednesday night prior to Gainesville. <laughs> we went testing, and, uh, man, it was it was late nights, all that, that two weeks prior to the truck rolling for testing. It was, you know, 14 to 17-hour days in the shop. It was just, uh, it was nonstop, and it, uh, it, was, it was stressful on both fronts because, well, three fronts. We had to get two customer bikes done for Joey and Corey. We had to get our motorcycle done, which was, you know, not going to happen until late January, early February. We didn't even know that it was going to be a possibility we were going to be racing any motorcycle in Gainesville. And then uh, the the new four-valve engine, um, trying to get that thing proven out on the racetrack. You know, it, the, the dyno only tells you so much. you got to shift gears and make the thing rev up to, uh, you know, nearly 14,000 RPM and, and uh, shift six times down the racetrack and make sure the valve train stays inside the valve cover. So yeah, that right. was uh, – <laughs> that was uh, a little stressful to say the least. How much, or I guess, how far above and beyond has this effort been, as opposed to anything else you've been involved in in your career, which has been so you have done significant things uh, both on the motorcycle and behind the scenes. But this seems to be on a level that uh, that is even grander than that. Yeah, it's it's definitely right up there on the top. You know, probably our, our biggest feat we ever had to tackle is when we we uh, went backwards from four valves to two valves in, from 2012 to 2013 on our Harleys back then that was probably a bigger feat because we didn't even have a design come December 1st and we had to go racing in March. So that was a, probably a bigger feat, but this is, this is cool. This is for the customers. This is for us to go racing back as uh, Vance and Hines and into our roots of uh, racing four cylinders. And it's, uh, it's cool, you know, to, to have the, 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 you know, be back then I wasn't as instrumental in the development of the parts. I was, I was just learning CAD development and learning some CNC programming. Now, um, you know, I help out the machine shop wherever I can with uh, making sure the the models are right for them, so they can program them correctly. And then, uh, you know, do I did all the design work on the cylinder head with the help of my dad, my brother, um, just trying to figure out if this thing can even, you know, make the horsepower we want to and make sure the valve train stays intact. So that was uh, it was a big feat between us and uh, all of our vendors, the suppliers, just trying to make sure that. You know, parts showed up on time, and we had enough to supply a, a, a few of our customers for the first outing. You know, just to be able to have them out there, not just with us, but with uh, supplied customers as well. Jerry Jerry Savoy did have one that weekend. Unfortunately, they had some uh, some bike problems, which prevented them from running that four valve okay. engine. And uh, I think they're in the process of getting that thing ready for hopefully Vegas. Hopefully, we'll see you out there in Vegas. You know how much of a how much of a, a, a note of accomplishment, or how much of this is a satisfaction to your dad as well? Because obviously, you know, Vance and Hines' legacy has been kind of this. You know, it's been innovation, it's been moving the sport and the category forward, and not to say things stagnated because they didn't. But but the box didn't really change a whole lot over the last several years, and now it has. And Vance and Hines once again is a big part of that. So you know, was your dad kind of looking at this as uh, kind of like a throwback in some sense of of just going all in on a project? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it gave everybody in here a, a, a renewed sense of enthusiasm towards the four-cylinder power plant. You know, the, the problem is still we're using cases from the 1980s that are still hard to get. You know, they're, they're, they're newly manufactured, but still based on those 1980s technology. And the crankshafts we're making here at Vance and Hines, you know, they're, that's ultimately going to be the weak link just because of the architecture we had to fit that into. Okay. So eventually in the future you know we'll probably have to go down the line of uh you know making a new set of cast cases or billet case or something like that to to supply customers because we just can't get them right now japan has stopped making them and it's uh it's proven to be very difficult but um but going back to the cylinder head you know it's like i said it's a renewed sense of enthusiasm you know the guys that are working on the engine blake and ruben 
they love how the engine goes together and comes apart. You got to have some specialty tools to do it. But you know, if you just want to change your or check your lash and and reshim your your uh, your lash on your your valve train, you can do that in a matter of minutes. Where nice. on the older designs, you had to pull out. If you had to do an intake cam, you'd have to pull the exhaust or you have to do. Sorry, if you had to do an exhaust cam shim, you have to pull the intake cam out, pull the exhaust cam out. It was a total pain. This thing is really modular. You can just pull off one cam cap, cam cap at a time. You know, with finger followers, they just kind of droop right out of there, and you can reset your lash and go down the down the road. And um, the the ability for these guys to work on the things is uh, you know made them smile a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's a big part of it too. And, and that's something that you know, in a lot of um, in a lot of respects, maybe escapes the the eye of the general public in terms of you can build something badass, but if nobody can service it in time or nobody and it's not it's not user friendly, so to speak, um, then it's then it's junk. I mean, nobody wants right. anything that they can't actually get serviced and turned around, or God forbid, have to really thrash hard on between rounds. So yeah. that's an interesting part of the whole development process as well. Yeah, the guys in the porting room and my dad himself, he's he's been excited to get back in there and get a porting tool back in his hand and try and find some better flow numbers and you know run that across the the cnc you know do one cylinder put on the cnc machine digitize that port run that through the other four throw it on the dyno make sure it pumps out the horsepower it's going the right way and uh, get back in the the porting room flow bench room and do it all over again so everybody's just running around uh having fun with it right now yeah, and, and you know the thought of your dad digitizing these ports and stuff from back in the day when he would just go in there with his with his you know carbine tip air tool and just start hogging out here or there and see yeah it looks a little better on the flow bench you know this is it's a really cool thing the fact that he is still so hands on in this program and that he was you know a central part of its uh, of its development if we shift into the kind of race week race weekend mode coming into it. I mean, what fears did you have before you loaded that bike out on Wednesday and went testing? Was it just the fact that maybe it's not going to do what we think it's going to do? I mean, what were the couple of things that stuck in your mind before you started to see some nice, clean runs being made? Well, I was really hoping we were going to see, uh, hoping we were not going to see exhaust valves come flying out the exhaust pipe <laughs> go down the racetrack. So that was my number one concern. Uh, luckily, all the clearances are right in there. We didn't throw any parts on the ground. And uh, between the three bikes we had testing there with uh, gel which was actually Eddie on Monday. Eddie rode our bike first just to prove it out. That was a un, it was an unproven new old generation Hayabusa body, uh, which notably had issues in the past with how it was originally designed and okay. and with with uh, Team War re- working with Aerodyne here in Indianapolis, they got the uh, the body to lose its role and yaw properties in the wind tunnel, but it still hadn't been on the racetrack. So um, just to give Angel some level of comfort, we had Eddie ride it, and he got it up to uh, 193 miles an hour on the first run. And nice. Everything was, was good with it. He didn't have any problems. So we, we knew we were comfortable there with how the bike was handling, and then it was just a matter of uh, finding the tune-up. Um, we haven't had a Motec M130 on a four-cylinder in our camp for five or six years. So trying to build from that, engine uh, ecu package from five years ago to adapt to this new four valve took a little bit of time we had some growing pains some misfiring and but the engine took it like a champ uh, nice we had, we had a little bit of head gasket problems here and there just because we were literally beating the heck out of them <laughs> and uh but we between the three bikes we made some good progress and uh heck Corey and joey went low 680s on like their second or third full run so and then uh, going into wednesday we were thinking, okay, we got some decent bikes. They may not be top of the pack or, or close to the top of the pack, but we could run, you know, five through seven, four through seven, something like that is what we were thinking. And then all of a sudden on the last test run, um, 
Gonjel was having some some growing pains. You know, she's reverting back to a four-cylinder motorcycle yeah. that she hadn't ridden in 15 years, and she'd been riding these V-twin thumpers for however long. Um, so she had to learn how to shift these things and listen to what it sounded like and, and get the feel for it all over again. And then on the last test session on Wednesday, we were just making eighth-mile runs because we had a pretty nasty crosswind. All of a sudden, the thing pops off this 103, 104-60-foot uh, 279 of the 330, 431 eighth mile, and she shut it off early. We're like, these are national record numbers. Yeah, I was going right to say here. it was one of the quickest eighth mile runs ever made, right? Right. And we we had we run the bike across the scales uh, the previous day, thinking, okay, let's make sure we're close to weight. We we had set it up close to weight, and here I am thinking, okay, the bike just went really fast. We're going to get to Gainesville and test, <laughs> and we're probably 25 pounds light. You know, that's right. what I'm thinking. So we roll into the Gainesville track. Uh, sorry, this was all on Tuesday. Wednesday, we went to the Gainesville track and, and tested because NHRA allowed that this year, blah, blah. We roll across the scale since she's three pounds light. We're like, oh, we're, we're good. So <laughs> We got a piece here. Yeah. Yeah. So then we just uh, we just wanted to make sure it would go down the racetrack and gain a little different rubber, different air, different track surface, get some uh, get some tuning on getting the bike going straight. And we had some still growing pains on Wednesday. But the uh, the ultimate time-telling deal came Friday when uh, I knew Angel would get back in the groove when it became, quote-unquote, race day with qualifying, lining up with a bike in the other lane. Testing's kind of the anomaly sometimes you're – you're sorting stuff out. The rider's not quite in the right mindset with not proper staging with lights turning on back and forth. And, but, uh, man, first run of, of qualifying, she laid it out there and, and nailed all her shift points. And then, unfortunately, the bike actually didn't shift into uh, into sixth gear on the first two times she pushed it. And it just tapped the rev limiter. So the, on the, off the truck, it went 74 at 196, and it probably could have gone 72 at, at 199. Yeah, so it's, all, it's an amazing. All we thing. did was, yeah, all we did was put the tune up back in from that good run on Wednesday, a Tuesday in Bradenton, and sent it down the track, and it was good to go. Now that's uh, that's really really cool. And then obviously you know, snicking off the two hundred mile an hour pass was, you know, obviously icing on the cake. I I saw the. Um, you know, I saw the excitement in Terry. I saw the excitement in the whole team. And obviously, you know, you're a guy standing there from your starting line perspective at this time of the season. Um, I guess what's the feeling? I mean, is the feeling like, is it satisfaction? Is it relief? Is it validation? Is it all that? It is all that. You know, it was really relief. I think uh, just making sure the bike would get in the show. And, you know, we weren't quite sure what was going to happen after testing. And, and uh, we knew there was some inkling of hope after that popped up those numbers. But, to see yeah. that number pop up on the scoreboard and then, uh, you know, like going into Saturday, we knew, okay, if we can get this thing to shift right, we just went through all the shifting mechanisms and made sure everything was right, had enough air pressure in it. And I told Angel, to, when she hits the button, just hold it down. And it shifted just fine. And, you know, Eddie and I, when we stand on the starting line behind Angel for her runs, we, we ride the bike with our eyes. You know, we, we see what she's doing and we give her as much feedback as she gives us when we get back from the run. And, we can see when it's going left, when it's going right, how much it's rolling over down track. Cause these motorcycles, if you roll them over from eighth mile on and you get them on the side of the tire, they don't spin, but the rolling resistance goes through the roof on okay. that Mickey Thompson tire. So you can throw away three, four miles an hour without even Jeez, blinking that's an crazy. eye. It is. So, you know, it's not a car sitting flat, sitting on the solid rear axle yeah. and going down the racetrack. These motorcycles, you, you, it's not a street bike tire. You're racing a car tire down the track and it does not like to be, uh, distressed <laughs> with putting a, yeah, it doesn't like having a wrinkle on the sidewall. So, um, we were watching her go down the track, and I, it, she got caught in the crosswind, and it started rolling over. I'm like, well, let's see if it's got enough, and it went 200.00. <laughs> 
And, you know, it probably could have been 200.50 if, uh, if it would have all gone straight. Cause she didn't have it leaned over too bad, but just enough to turn that scoreboard on the right way. That's really, really cool. You know, one of the other things that's been great about this is, you know, Mission Foods has, like, jumped all in. I mean, they got Angel at grocery stores. They're making the pro-stock motorcycle-shaped chips. Um, you know, I talked to Elon Werner, who was my first guest on the show, and it's and we talked a lot about how, you know, a good PR person is not just helping their particular driver, but also helps kind of elevate the whole sport. And honestly, this is the type of thing that we've needed forever in NHRA, like somebody actively coming in and activating with their driver. It's really impressive. Yeah, to actually get them out in stores that are around the area, and even not just the area of the of that race market, they're putting them in stores across the country, and getting it out there so people can see drag racing, and and uh, it's like you said, it's what the sport needed. It's a non-race driven product. It's something that mainstream people that are in grocery store or walking through, heck, you might even see you'll, you'll see tortilla strips anywhere yeah. in any place they're serving food, right? So. Um, they're in more places than people actually know about. That's the cool thing. So talking with uh, some of the mission reps there that, that weekend, they really opened our eyes to what they do around the world and around our day-to-day lives that people we don't know about. They supply a lot of food to uh, a lot of companies. That's great. So take me from the Gator Nationals, I guess, until this interview. Uh, so you leave the racetrack. I'm sure you, know, you want to win the race every weekend. That's obviously the goal. That didn't quite come together. But you leave the race with, uh, with several serviceable, fast, competitive motorcycles. So what is the kind of next phase of this project? Well, the great thing was we left Gainesville and we brought all the all the four valve engines that had been run that weekend. We brought them back just because we wanted to to look at the history on them, see what see what had happened to them, and and kind of you know start our our plan for what needs to happen for uh, maintenance times and things like that. And they all left the track running. <laughs> it's yeah, not very often. We, yeah, <laughs> they, they were not coming back in pieces and leaking oil. They they were all intact, and that was a, a great thing. So. Um, since we got back, you know, we, uh, our guy Blake has just gone through every single engine, making sure everything's good. Uh, he tears them all the way down, looks at our crankshafts, and makes sure we don't have any uh, issues with the crankshafts popping up. And everything in the cylinder head has been top notch. It's been perfect. Valve springs look great. Valves look great. Valve jobs look great. Pistons look perfect. Um, you know, building new engines to get a little bit of trash that just builds up in the engine over time from wearing down. Uh, transmission gears and uh, cam chain shaves off a few parts here and there. It's just uh, you get a little bit of scarring on cylinder walls, so you do a touch-up hone. Um, But everything's looked phenomenal. We actually, about 10 minutes before you called me, we just rolled our race engine back into our room so we could put her back together for next week. Great. Uh, Truck truck will be rolling out on Monday, and um, we got some stuff in in the works for for future development to help our customers move along through the process. we're, We're kind of the guinea pig for you know, but now that Vance Nines is back racing a Suzuki out of the our RDC, our race development center, which is here in Brownsburg, it's gonna the the positive effects to our our customers is gonna be phenomenal because we're gonna be the guinea pig doing the R and D and making sure if we hurt anything, we hurt our engine first before it hurts our customers. If we make a little bit more power, that's gonna trickle down and customers will be able to get updates throughout the season, and it'll be a, a phenomenal thing for everybody involved. No, it is great, and I guess the natural question coming off that that comment is. Was the phone ringing when he got back from Gainesville? It was ringing before we left Gainesville. <laughs> I mean, the the outreach from all the customers wanting to get these engines and 
and it's not just our customers it's uh you know pro mod motorcycles that are running nitrous and in other series and uh all these guys you know pro street bikes that are running the gs platform they all want this cylinder head now it's like it's the next hot ticket out there and problem is we just we got to make them fast enough to support our pro stock customers and then we'll get them out there into uh the mainstream other racers and and uh get things going but our our cnc machines only work so fast there's only so many hours in the day and uh what we're having one one supply chain problem with a very critical part in the engines not camshafts not all things like that but we're just having a hard part getting uh some some things that we need to uh, to move some valves up and down. So, uh-huh. well, that's um, you know that's been a situation across the industry, obviously for for so many people, not just in motorcycling, but uh, you know any sort of aftermarket company that is needing, um, especially like material. You know, there's a material shortage in the country too, which is slowing everything down. So I can I can exactly sympathize. yeah 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 it's tough. So you know we're up against that. We're trying to supply more engines out there for more racers, and uh, as as those parts come in, we build the engines and. Uh, I think we'll have uh, one other customer. I think uh, Kelly Klontz will have her four valve ready for for next week as well. So awesome. We'll have quite a few of them out there in Vegas. No, that's fantastic, Andrew. Thanks for taking the time, man. I know you guys have been hustling. It is uh, a great accomplishment for Vance and Hines. Certainly something that um, you, Eddie, and the entire team, your dad, that have worked so hard on this project, should be proud of. Because for me, you know, as a fan of the sport and as obviously kind of a paid spectator at these races, um, it's important that stuff like this is going on. It's important that that we see. The, uh, the engineering ability that exists within our sport that it isn't simply just buying somebody else's stuff it is there's homegrown ingenuity happening here and that's certainly what you guys have accomplished yeah it's been fun and uh it's nice to to have that stress behind me for now now we can go out there focus on racing and try and get some more wind lights on sunday yeah now you can get stressed about other stuff it's perfect it's the way life works <laughs> andrew <laughs> thank you very as, much man yeah we won't be as greedy as we were on sunday in gainesville <laughs> we were uh, we were trying to rotate the earth and go 74 against second round but the track did not like us dang Yep, we'll be out there. Thanks, Andrew. Yep, bye. Really kind of fascinating chat there with Andrew Hines to look kind of inside, get the inside line on how the entire process of development and how the entire process of advancement continues on with this new engine design that has certainly proven its bones down there at the Gator Nationals. It will be trying to prove its bones about a week from now when we get out there to the Denso Spark Plugs NHRA 4-Wide Nationals in Vegas. As I mentioned at the top of the show, tickets are sold out. If you do not have tickets yet, you ain't getting in the gate, so that means you got to tune in to FS1 for all our weekend of coverage. we got a Friday night qualifying show we have coverage from our saturday qualifying and of course sunday eliminations go to nhra.com to get the entire television schedule from the event thanks for listening to this episode of the nhra insider podcast something a little bit different this week talking tech talking media and talking about the world of nhra camping world drag racing i'm brian loans thanks for listening